On today's episode of The Watch, it's Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Wars. This is our preview pod. So Andy and I talk a little bit about what we're expecting from the new Star Wars movie, Last Jedi, where we think the franchise is going, what, what kind of hopes we have for Ryan Johnson's film. And then on Monday, we're going to be talking more about the film in the review way. Uh, but that's not all. It's not all porgs here. We also talked to Megan Abbott, one of our favorite authors and the author of Queenpin, which is our new Double Down book club selection. Megan has written for The Deuce. She's also a bit acclaimed novelist whose most recent novel, You Will Know Me, is excellent. She's also got a book called Dare Me, The Fever. She's really on a roll, but this is a 2007 novel she wrote. It's a slim novel. It's really punchy, and it's kind of has like a real Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett noir feel. Andy and I loved it, so we wanted to talk to Megan about it. It's called Queen Pin. You can go cop that. So that's the menu for today: Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Wars, and some Megan Abbott. I need supports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. now. Hello, and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at TheRinger.com, and joining me in the studio, he just got out of jail after beating the Porg importation charge. It's Andy Greenwald! It's a big weekend we're looking at. What's bail like for that? Ty Cobb gets you off? Ty Cobb, yes. <laughs> Shout Actually, out to him. The ghost of the dead baseball player got me off. Andy, this is, we are recording this on a Monday. This is going up on Thursday. Today's episode of The Watch, we are going to be talking a little bit about our expectations heading into the Star Wars. Star Wars weekend. The Last Jedi, Star Wars weekend. We will obviously go be diving deep on this for Monday's show. Generally, with Force Awakens and Rogue One, yep. I was, uh, you could say, in, a, in a, a muck lather of anticipation. I love when you say that. I was very, very fired up. Incredible trailers, just a ton of of like just built up years of wanting to see this world. Yeah. Not so much for this one. Mm-hmm. I feel like they have slow rolled the promo mm-hmm. visually. Mm-hmm. So I hadn't really been feeling like I cannot wait. I can't believe mm-hmm. this is happening until mm. I saw over on Twitter over the weekend that they were making a four year consideration case for Mark Hamill for best actor. Really? And I was like, Oh, shit. Wow. Yeah. I got, like, the hair on the back of my neck stood up. Hamill's having a moment. So, um, look, we're not going to talk about what people are sort of saying about this movie yet. I want to talk about what we are looking for, because I think that this is kind of a crucial point, not only for the Star Wars franchise, but for a lot of these marquee franchises in Hollywood. Yep. We are, in some, for a lot of them, there is a sort of feeling of we're rounding third, say, for the... Uh, the concept we have of the Marvel Universe, I think, will be changing over the next two years. For DC movies, they are obviously going to have to go through some sort of a reboot after Justice League's failures. There is a lot of, like, we've got to set up the future movies. We've got to pay homage to the past movies going on. And then you've got Star Wars. Obvious, uh, arguably the biggest of all of them. And I think Force Awakens and Rogue One did a lot of work on the past, Force Awakens, in a lot of ways, is, mm-hmm. is Star Wars karaoke. It, it sort of mm-hmm. plays the hits. You have a lot of familiar faces. It has a, some some very familiar beats. Mm-hmm. Rogue One had a lot. It's the highs of Rogue One are about as high as you can get, and the highest part of Rogue One was a friggin' prelude yep. to A New Hope. Yep. So here we are, mm-hmm. Last Jedi. Ryan Johnson, who will also be directing a new trilogy of Star Wars films mm-hmm. in the future, is helming it. He's arguably the best director to ever direct a Star Wars movie. I think you can make that case. And we will find out, are we boldly going somewhere else, or are we kind of running in place? 
you know, I was prepared to sit down and talk about this movie in a sort of a low stakes way because I think that Force Awakens, as you said, hit all the right buttons, did not leave me clamoring to know more about the life of the, the futures of Rey and Finn and the mm-hmm. other characters in it. I, to be frank, I, I don't even remember my emotional engagement with them. Rey, to, Rey yes, but to the other characters, not not so much. Um, but as you were talking, and as I've been thinking about this, getting psyched up to see the movie, it, that might not be the case. It may actually there may actually be a lot riding on this, and I'm downplaying it. We live in an era where the our favorite things um, culturally, our favorite toys—I mm-hmm. mean that not even pejoratively—are all slotted and scheduled well in advance. All of these movies are happening whether we like it or not. There will be more Marvel movies. There, there will, will be, be more DC movies. Fifteen there will more be years of Star Wars. Movies. Many, many more years of Star Wars movies. They are. They are. Um, annotated line items in shareholder reports. Mm -hmm. That's what they are. I realize as we've learned to sort of live with their presence in our lives and the outsized role that they play and and our changing emotions towards them as they've changed from, oh my God, are we really getting this thing we want to? Are we prepared to continue getting it? Um, What we want most of all is the feeling, we want the ghost in the machine. We want a feeling of a hand on the wheel. And I think one of the reasons why Thor Ragnarok was so wildly praised, and I say this as someone who loved it, was because you could tell that there was that Taika Waititi made this movie. He somehow managed to make his mark on the behemoth. And what I realize, what I do want, and actually means a lot to me here, is I would like to see Ryan Johnson's movie, separate and apart from this is episode eight. Right. To me, the most important part actually is his role in it. And what that says about the future of the franchise and the future of franchise management, a lot hangs in the balance. Because unlike everything else, um, certainly everything else to come from Star Wars, he's either done such a good job or other circumstances were drawing her attention. But Kathleen Kennedy, who runs the franchise now, has just said everything with her silence. She's let, she's let him alone. Yeah. He does not have... There are not five writers credited. There is one. There were not secret editing room directors directing this there was one yeah and we said before the silence surrounding it can only be a good thing the announcement not that he's been fired but that he's been given three more movies can only be it's a, a good vote thing. of confidence considering it, the fact that you know lord miller got taken off of han solo and there was re-edits and reshoots on rogue, rogue one, one and josh trank was fired and there was original like there was a whole other michael arndt script for Force Awakens Colin that cast him on. Gone, you know, exactly. And I mean, like, this back. is... And you know what? I've been doing a lot of research about some of the original films, and those were not smooth sailing productions. I just, you no. know, I'm, I, if you're listening to this on Thursday, hopefully I will do my job and have this piece up on TheRinger.com this week about the uh, the outsized influence of Empire, not only on the Star Wars uh, franchise, but on our collective imaginations about what second movies and, tra- mm-hmm. and trilogies can do and what the dark sequel can be. Yeah, and what the role of darkness in movies that are essentially light entertainment. You, the making of Empire Strikes Back was not like they that was that was there was it was beset by problems, not only in the fact that they were building swamps inside of sound stages in London and shooting in Norway and people were cold and Harrison Ford was like, what is this shit? And Mark Hamill was like, I'm this is crazy. I'm acting with Muppets for most of this movie. All valid concerns. Yeah, but they, and you know, that Lee Brackett had written the original version of the script then passed away. And then Lawrence Kasdan came in and fixed, you know, did some work on it. So it was a lot of, um, there's, this is not new for these movies to have tumultuous production cycles, but, um, that's the other element that I really wanted to talk to you about was what's your darkness appetite? What, what do you think that we can possibly see in terms of, 
pushing the boundaries of what you can make for a, sh- a movie that's essentially made I, for six-year-olds. I, I gotta say, you it it's almost it's almost difficult to answer that question because I can't conceive of a of a darkness in this movie because quite frankly. I don't care enough about these people yet. Yeah, and and I yeah. think that's a ding on on you Force know Awakens. on Force Awakens. You know, they, there were a lot of things they had to accomplish in that movie, and almost all of the ones that mattered, certainly for a corporate bottom line, they accomplished. Um, even you know, I, I we can. I'm sorry, I'm going to say something spoilery about Force Awakens, but Han Solo dies in that movie. Yeah, it feels even that felt more like a yep. That was a, you know, they completed the circle. That made sense. It was a nod to, in as much as it was a nod to uh, fathers and sons fighting on catwalks with lightsabers, it was also a nod to Harrison Ford wanting out of the original trilogy and having his wish finally be fulfilled. Every element of that felt as, it was was as clinical as it was emotional. Um, So I need to, I need this movie. There's a lot riding on it because I need to be as invested in Finn and Ray and um, every single Porg. Like, I want to know the whole power structure of the sure. poor government, how they organize their society in order to feel threatened by right. them. And that's, again, that's a lot on him for that. What, what's your answer to well, your Well, the last question? thing I think I'll just say about this in general is that when you go back and watch Empire, and I think this happens a lot as, you know, these film franchises start expanding. And if they, they truly invest in the Daisy Ridley, John Boyega, Adam Driver kind mm-hmm. of trinity here, is that in Empire um, – most of the characters are not in the same place at the same time. Yeah, they're all the, spread out around the... It's essentially, it's more like what you kind of understand from television. Mm-hmm. It's more like Thrones when you're like, okay, now we go here, and now we go here, and, and now we go here. And separate quests on and this season will mean more. And they're sort of coming together, right. but they're, it, it's largely the, fur, the, the, the further adventures of these people in completely different places. Um, that's a challenge, and that's a, especially a challenge when you haven't had the the emotional investment that you're talking about in this new set of characters, because you did have to sort of do all this, uh, legacy service. Now I'm, I'm really Daisy Ridley is, is a star. And like, I think that she can carry this franchise, but it'll be very, I'm very curious to see how Ryan Johnson deals with what will inevitably be like Daisy Ridley is over here and John Boyega is over Mm -hmm. here and here's Kylo Ren, you know, and And here's Oscar Isaac and here's Carrie Fisher and all this stuff. And what are we going to do with these characters? Yeah. I mean, one, but one nice thing about this, because it's not grading, it's the opposite of grading on a curve, maybe. Because we know of no um, major rifts or issues behind the sure. scenes drama, we aren't watching this movie the way we were watching Force Awakens to see if the seams show. Right. We're not watching it the way we were watching Rogue One to see if we can tell where the reshoots happened mm-hmm. or where the notes came down. Um, instead, we can do things like, say, I love the aesthetics of this film so far, and I haven't seen it. I love the use of red sure. in the trailer, in the posters. The tone of it feels very um, aesthetically interesting and compelling and pure. I think in we and talked about it. I said like it has like overtones of a western to it. We can talk about how the cast. I mean, the strongest argument for Force Awakens uh, before it came out and after it came out is if you just run down the IMDb page, I would see a movie with John Boyega, Oscar Isaac, Lupita Nyong'o. Donald Gleason, Doonal, we got to figure that out before we do another (laughs) U2 pod, certainly. Um, Adam Driver, like, this is a great cast. And then in this movie, you had Benicio Del Toro, you had Laura Dern. I mean, that's really cool to see those people in a movie. So there are a lot of small good things at work here, but I was going to say it is unique, but maybe it is just purely positive to say um, we are a day away from 
what is going to be the biggest movie of the year, both in terms of box office and in terms of cultural engagement. And the baseline that I'm bringing into it, and I think a lot of people are, is I am excited to see a good movie. Yep. And, you know, look, I'm, I'm, I'm as psyched to see Infinity War as the next Piker, but like saying I want to see a good movie that stands on its own, that's, I'm not even bringing that playbook into the theater. The fact that we can say this, maybe we're all going to be disappointed or maybe we're all going to be surprised in a way we don't, or maybe we're all going to be surprised. But the fact that we can say that going into this is, is pretty exciting. Okay, man. Andy, we're going to put a pin in the Star Wars talk. We're going to get to our conversation with Megan Abbott, author of Queen Pin, our new Double Down book club selection, and a writer for The Deuce. So we'll get to that conversation after a quick word from our sponsors. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Sonos. We've been talking about Sonos all year long on The Watch. It's a speaker system that really just, you know, maybe me and Andy fall back in love with music. Uh, It is just so awesome. It is the modern stereo. You have it in your house. It can play in different rooms. It can play different songs in different rooms, different volumes in different rooms. You can have a party. You can have one kind of music playing for you in one room, one kind of music playing for your roommate or your loved one in another room. It's perfect. And, you know, the only thing that we really wanted from, from Sonos was the ability to talk to it. And that's where Sonos One comes in. Sonos One blends great sound with Amazon Alexa, the easy-to-use voice service for hands-free control of your music and more. You can use your voice to play songs while you cook. You can tell Alexa to turn up the volume while you're in the shower. You can even request a lullaby out loud when you're tucking in the kids or you're tucking in yourself. Sometimes people want to hear a little bit of quiet bedtime music. I don't know. Play songs, turn on the lights, adjust the temperature, check the news and traffic, manage smart devices, and more with the helpful Amazon Alexa, all using a single Sonos speaker. And since Sonos is continually updating with new features, services, and skills, your music and voice options will both keep getting better and better over time. And now, Sonos is offering the listeners of The Watch 10% off one order of $2,500 or less for any product on Sonos.com. It's the holidays. Give you or someone you love the gift of music all over again. And why not have that Sonos one so you have somebody to talk to when you don't feel like talking to your family? The offer is available for a limited time only and cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. Use the promo code WATCH10. That's capital W-A-T-C-A at Sonos.com to receive this offer. We are so excited and happy to be joined once again by uh, by writer Megan Abbott. Megan, calling from New York again. Thank you. How are you? Is it too cold? Um, are you in the middle of writing the Deuce Season 2? Paint a picture for us. <laughs> I've been watching porn all day. It's exhausting. <laughs> no, I, I, we are back in the room, but I... I have, I'm not watching any porn yet, so, they, um, but everything is good. That, that's the carrot they dangle in front of the writers? It's not till week seven that you get to watch it? <laughs> it is. I did have an email exchange about accessing a particular movie, actually, today, so I guess I am back at it. So I'm looking for that Misty Beethoven. So. I'm not even... <laughs> I guess I didn't even appreciate it from an aesthetic level that um, as you research the deuce, the, the type of porn and like the filming, the, the nature of it is going to change as well as you're going into the video era and things like that. 
Yes, yes, no, definitely. Well, we, you know, moving, you know, a few years ahead, we're in it's the sort of higher production values, better quality, but about to turn. And, you know, you know the Boogie Night story. It's about to turn, you know, into worse than it ever was <laughs> um, when, when video arrives and, uh, and you know, film doesn't mean anything. And, you know, um, so, yeah, so this is actually an exciting moment in porn uh, when it was sort of at its peak. <laughs> you know, I actually am curious because th- this actually segues nicely into Queenpin, but for you when you're writing, whether it's for screen or, or for a novel, how immersive is it? Are, are you only listening to music from the time period? Are you, you know, do you have wall-to-wall carpeting now? I mean, have you have you started investigating <laughs> you real estate in the San Fernando Valley? <laughs> I'm in it. I'm in it. I have my webcam on as we speak. No, I, do, I, I, you know, it is. I do try to do that. Not every, you know, Lisa, the one of the other writers in the room, Lisa Lutz. Uh, she does not do that at all. Like we're the opposite. I, I really, I do it in my novels too. Um, I just like to, I like to have the playlist. I, I like to have, you know, um, the pictures to look at, and you know, I like to look at, you know, New York magazines from the seventies. Sure. You know, to see the articles, you know, that just helps me somehow, especially with the way people speak, uh, maybe more than anything, um, to get, get out of my own rhythm, um, you know, and sort of the world we live in now. And right now, it seems particularly enticing to go back into the past, yeah. <laughs> even the 70s. So. Really, go, to go anywhere sounds pretty good. Um, yeah, yeah. We want to, of course, talk to you about the latest selection from our Double Down Book Club, Queenpin. But before we do it, we have unfinished business with you and to some degree with our listeners because we, uh, Chris and I, both love Mindhunter. Mm-hmm. And we did not talk about yeah. the last few episodes of it, which, having watched them, I think are the best of the of the season. And you expressed to us, I think even on Twitter, that you are you are down for this conversation. So <laughs> Yes, yes. Please I'm down. I'm totally down. help us complete this conversation. Um why did you what were you because I think you were a little bit reticent at first. What 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 got you into the show and then what strikes you as the strongest part of it? Yeah, I was so resistant. I can't even tell you. I had no plan to watch it. And I, I think it's really because, you know, I I you as a crime novelist who really came like started reading crime fiction in the eighties loved the serial killer, FBI, you know, that was sort of the, when it all began, you mm-hmm. know, all the Thomas Harris and all those sort of narratives. Um, and it was thrilling to me and the profiling was fascinating. And, and then, you know, it, the saturation of that story and the sort of, I guess in some ways the degradation of that story over time as mm-hmm. it had been sort of becomes a copy of a copy of a copy. Um, I had just grown so fatigued by it with the exception of something like Hannibal that, that really turns it around. I didn't think I could be handle the TV show. I didn't think I could be enticed in, but it really was listening to your podcast <laughs> and hearing Chris talk about it, like rave about it. I think, he, I think I don't remember Chris, you had seen it first or you were in it more first and, uh, um, so I, um, I started to think about it, and a few people I know kept asking me if I'd seen it. They seemed to have strong feelings, pro or con. So then I just sort of fell into it halfway, and then you know by the second episode I was in it. Just seemed different uh, in every way um, than what I was expecting. Yeah, I mean, adventure, you know? I think one of the great things about it is that it's not unlike crime fiction. Uh, you know, crime novels where there are only so many sort of ways to skin a cat and only so many stories to tell, but the, the, the slight adjustments that they make tonally in terms of casting, obviously the visuals are are unique because they're 
largely from the mind of Fincher, they, it just throws you off a little bit because it is a very familiar story and it does have some of the familiar pitfalls of that story. But, you know, they could, the way that they treat the subject matter is so unique and curious, but also reticent. And you can feel the sort of the filmmakers thinking about the subject matter as the characters in the show are thinking about the subject matter. Uh, what was sort of, is there any storyline from it or performance that jumped out at you? Yeah. Well, I loved Kench. <laughs> I'd never seen yeah. that actor before. He, like, he's what really drew me in at the beginning. I think that Jonathan Groff is excellent. And I think by the end, I thought his performance was totally bravo, especially the final episode, but, but it was his partner. Um, I don't know the name of the actor. Holt. It's Holt McCallany. Yeah, he's so he won me over. Um, but I think in part, and this goes to the larger issue of why I thought it. I thought just as you say, I thought this, they were figuring it out as it went, and they were kind of deconstructing all the, the tropes as each episode went along. And the, for me, the largest one they deconstructed is this notion of the super rational macho profiler who mm -hmm. brings all his sort of brain power to this and somehow is it has mastery over it. And of course we see that, especially in the last two episodes, completely unravel. You know? And this sort of it gets exposed. You know, that sort of fantasy, that arrogance in in, you know, in Holden Ford's you know, as those episodes go on, it's sort of belief that he understands everything. That starts to unravel, and it starts to feel weirdly like this deconstruction of a real toxic masculinity, which felt very prescient. Yes, and, and also I think a really strong rebuttal to a generation of TV, which has basically lionized the... In, and, and, not, and I don't even mean prestige TV, quote-unquote, although it's there too, but yeah. in procedural TV... Ever since House, the sort of the impossible genius who can break yeah. down absolutely oh, really everything. A lot on House's front porch there. Look, I love House, but it's been <laughs> yeah, that's been degraded slightly in the in the intervening years. But yeah, exactly as you said, that, the, that maybe that person isn't that healthy, or it really doesn't have it all figured out. <laughs> yeah. If you can identify that you're being dumped just by looking at a wine glass on a porch. Um, what one other Mindhunter question I had to ask you was for me. Um, the strongest episode of the season was the eighth episode, which is about the foot tickling, the principal in the school. And it, it's such a wild and surprising detour for a, a, a series. And I'm a sucker for a – it's not really a bottle episode, but I'm a sucker for a surprising detour, particularly late in the season. But to me, it was so deeply unsettling because it, it left you in such, such a wonderfully ambiguous or horribly ambiguous place. And in a lot of ways, it reminded me of a lot of your writing as well, where um, the intimacy of everyday gestures can be wildly misunderstood mm -hmm. or misconstrued and, and, and things can happen from, from them. Um, I, I was curious if you were struck by the same thing and what your take on it was. Yes, that's really when I felt it was going into this sort of whole second gear. Because to devote, you know, no procedural or no sort of sexy show about FBI, you know, even prestige sexy show, would ever devote that much time to this weird high school principal. And and the character, you know, uh, holding sort of obsession with him. It was just so smart. And it was so, um, like, it was really going somewhere in terms of, Things we think about now in terms of thought police or when does desire become dangerous and other things that are, are are thought but not acted on, you know, um, and, you know, how acted on do they need to be and, you know, who's surveilling who here? Because you know, at that point and then after that, 
holding is gets weirder and weirder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. such that we reach the episode final moment. And we, you know, we, all these sort of categories, these clean, neat distinctions, um, sort of have sort of disintegrated um, in a classic Fincher way, in the best of Fincher, you know, in the Zodiac Fincher. Too. Yeah, I mean, it's such an incredible moment where you feel like a, any other version of this show leans into him becoming Sherlock. Where every nobody yeah. believes in him, and then they're like, "Oh, you've done it again! Mm-hmm. You've done it again!" And it's and it just he does he doesn't do it. The, People are appalled at him. The way he makes that one situation way worse, and essentially ends his own. You know, he's puts his career on the line. Speaking of tension, the looks that McCallany gives to oh, Jonathan yeah. Groff oh, yeah. as they yeah. physically change. This is also directorial, but the way that he suddenly gets an office and they move away from him physically, yes. it's so, we see it happen. We notice things that he, the character, the genius doesn't notice. Megan, one of the things that I think we could tie this to your writing too is just that a lot of the show is about almost the hubris of trying to articulate or give order to what is essentially, for most people, I think, something that they can barely understand, which is this, what is depravity? What is deviance? What is evil? And Holden is trying to give it this new set of vocabulary, this new vocabulary. But that is often what a writer like you was challenged to do, which is to sort of give form to something that uh, is for a lot of people incomprehensible, whether it's evil or whether it's yeah. it's just these the leaning into our worst impulses. And I was wondering in terms of Queen Pin, which obviously has a, a a really jabbing staccato style, that when you're thinking about the style of a of how you're gonna write a book, how much does that come into play in terms of how you're gonna articulate these incredibly dark themes? Yeah, I do. I think about that issue a lot because it, I always feel like, you know, all fiction has a, isn't a genre, but let's just say genre fiction. Genre fiction always has certain principles. Of, you know, people who read genre fiction tend to read a lot of books, you know, uh, and there's certain expectations in terms of your narrative that require a certain tidiness. There's certain, you know, you set out a question, you want to kind of answer it. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean a traditional mystery, you know, with a clues and a, and a solution, but you want, to, want it to be satisfying to those readers who read a lot of crime fiction. Mm-hmm. But you also, I also want to satisfy those readers who are readers like me that really believe in ambiguity is really where we're all at and you know the gray area is where we all live in and we all have dark desires and urges and so i when i when i sort of construct a story i want to be tidy enough that that both readers and sometimes they're the same often they're the same reader but there's conflicting impulses of them is to satisfy it from the person that's looking in, you're looking for a story about a, a crime or criminals and, you know, seeing, seeing justice get paid or seeing them pay for their desserts or run away, you know, and get away with it, you know, but also this other weirder stuff that has unspooled in the book gets well, to sort of continue to trickle out forever. I, I love that you use the word desire because that to me is the the dominant um, sensation of, of Queenpin. Uh, Obviously, those of us who love reading books like this, we're, we we love to wallow a little bit. We love to go to these dark places and to these dark worlds. But often the characters we visit with when we're reading the books, especially if we're from the perspective of, of cops, you know, they're, they're tasked with cleaning it up to some degree. And they travel through those worlds, but they try not to get too dirty. Often they do. I, sometimes there's not really um, a sense of honesty about the desire to go to those places, just full stop. And reading Queen Pin as the character descends, you know, th- 
your your writing never shies away from the deep physical desire that she feels for um for her relationship with Gloria for being able to go to the track and be looked at a certain way and then ultimately for the 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 guy who who sort of sinks the whole thing when she meets him um how how do you navigate that how how I, I guess I, I don't even have a question there. I'm sort of highlighting something that I find so fascinating and really striking about your work. Um, and I just love to hear you talk more about it. Well, yeah, I think about, I mean, it's sort of, on some ways, that's always what I'm writing about. It's sort of the last Catholic in me, but it's such a desire <laughs> to be a sort of uh, fascinating, and it's particularly female desire mm-hmm. and how uncomfortable it makes people, and by, by which I also include women, you know, um, just, you know, in particular as a sort of strand of crime fiction, is so much about male desire, um, and it just sort of dangers, uh, but it, but it's a female desire is, is too dangerous to even fathom in most traditional noir fiction. It's not even there, you know, because the femme fatale not really a real person. It's just this sort of projection of male anxiety, you know. Um, so, you know, with Queen Pen and ones, like I wouldn't just show this sort of, that, that female desire can be just as out of control, and in fact more, because it's subversive from the start. Women are not supposed to want things as much as men do, right? Um, they're supposed to be the, the order. They're supposed to be the, you know, Huck goes out on the river, and the, you know, and the women stay home on the shoreline, you know. Mm-hmm. That's always the way it's been. Um, or John Wayne, you know, goes out on his horse, and, you know, and the women are back, you know, you know through the doorway, you know, keeping the home front, you know. Uh, so so that's, that's the sort of the land I want to live in and, and not make it always perfect and there there's messes and that it's, you know, the narrator, you know, she can't stop herself in the same way all those great, you know, noir uh, men from Jim Thompson and David Goodis, you know, can't stop themselves. Uh, and so that that all is sort of what, what I find interesting and and, and, you know, just strange. It, feels, it felt fresh to write that book because I was sort of writing, you know, taking all these tropes. But, you know, when the, when you're dealing with women, everything just looks a little different. And then some things don't look different at all. That, that, that's actually specifically what I wanted to ask you about. One of the great joys of, of noir books is that there are these wonderful and long-lasting tropes to play with. And we, we look forward to seeing them. And I think writers enjoy playing with them and playing against them. When you created your your unnamed female protagonist and um, Gloria Denton, the, sort of the, the titular queen pin, what changed about the characters and about the tropes when you made them women and when you explored who they were specifically to this book? Yeah, because I, I really thought it would be, like, I really wanted to write in the, the vein of the, um, you know, like the grifters, like aging criminal and protege it's always men and what would it be like if it were women and it would be so wildly different and in in many ways it just wasn't it's just that people respond to it differently you know there's still um like in any you know literary mentor student relationship there's inevitably the betrayal the student always betrays the mentor and the mentor is always more vulnerable in some way, despite seeming to have all the power. Um, so that all unfolded without me trying in the in this sort of classic way. But 
somehow um, the stakes seemed so much higher because these were women, and there were women operating in these male universes. Um, you know, the mob, uh, you know, casino, world, you know, the world of gambling, uh, the world of cops, you know. Um, so the stakes just, just they, they were the things that changed most of all. There's a, a feeling for me, you know, compared to some of your more recent work, like, say, Fever, where... It, I, I feel like this book, the tone of the book very much matches the atmosphere of the book. So there's a, a real um, rapid um, snare drum kind of quality to the, oh. to the language. <laughs> it ratatats. And then you obviously, like, I think that your writing has really uh, evolved since then. Um, how much do you, I mean, it's not, I don't want to say where you, did you feel like you were working within, with the instruments that were sort of passed down to you by people like Thompson and Chandler and the greats of like those sort of forties, uh, uh, noir time, but were you feeling like, okay, I'm going to use the language of, of these great writers and then invert it in terms of both, like you're saying that the idea of female desire, but also you know, just in terms of how you were going to have these people sound. I mean, inevitably there's going to be some differences there, but can you talk a little bit about working in that kind of hallowed ground? Yeah, it's, you know, it's so much out of love. I mean, those are the books that I, that got me started writing and, and the sort of red has has certainly comes from me reading a lot of James Alroy, <laughs> you know, uh, so it's, it's a, it's a love song to those writers. Uh, but yeah, it's just, um, um, every, you know, having, imagining what women in that world, how they would have to operate to exist in it, um, made everything sort of have this weird contortion to it, you know, uh, you know, there like what would like what room is there for a woman like Gloria Denton, who's sort of and who's based on a real person, um, Virginia Hill, who I don't know if you saw the Warren Beatty Bugsy movie. Yeah, that, that's mm-hmm. the that's the that's the Annette Benning. She plays Virginia Hill, but but in real oh. life, Virginia Hill, she was an attaché for the mob, and she really. You know, she really operated in that world, and and with men trusted her, um, and so so that was really fascinating to me. But what you would have to do to yourself to operate in that world as a woman, you know, a man is hard enough, but as a woman, that that just made everything feel very heightened, which gave me permission, I think, to heighten the language and to heighten it's you know, and make it even more and more stylized. In some ways, it felt like. Um, inspired by those books also, but also so much by movies, you know, um, that I would move as fast as the movie did and everything, you know, and I, and the, it would try to be like the, you know, you know, Scorsese kind of cut, 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 you know, that kind of thing. So I think that had an influence on the style as well. Speaking of both books and movies, um, a, a, a title that this, the Queenpin really reminded me of, and, I, and I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on, is In a Lonely Place by Dorothy Hughes, um, which is a novel from 1947, 60 years before Queenpin, actually, to the year, uh, that became a, a, a very famous um, Humphrey Bogart film. She, Dorothy Hughes was a successful writer in the genre at the time, which I think made her sort of an outlier. Um, she wrote about... Their, the, you can't read those books and not think about um, established... Um, systems of misogyny and, and how women were treated in the world and as, you know, in, in, especially in a criminal world. But she was not, either she wasn't able to or she was not inspired to write from the purely female perspective as you did in Queenpin. I was wondering if you're familiar with her work and then the, the differences yeah. obviously between what what she was pursuing and what you were pursuing in this book. 
Yeah, that's my favorite. Uh, and Lonely plays the book and the movie, you know, and if any of you have seen the uh, movie with Humphrey Bogart and the great Gloria Graham is wonderful. The book is somewhat different, but it's all, like it really this is, dovetails nicely with Mindhunter because, and this is not a spoiler, the book is it's really about a serial, a male serial killer in post-war Los Angeles, and it's very much about gender and misogyny, but in the, in the, not in any obvious way, it just feels so, it feels like she understood something about, that's the moment that noir is born, right? Post-war America, disillusionment, guys coming back from the war and being afraid of that their women have, you know, taken their jobs and slept with other men while they were gone. And so that's how you get all these femme fatales and film noir is birth. But, you know, like she understood that right when it was happening, which, you know, and I'm just writing, uh, writing my way back into that era, you know. Um, so I, I do really do sort of kneel at her feet. In fact, New York Review Books just reissued that, and I wrote the afterword oh, for it. That's exciting. Uh, yeah. So, uh, uh, so it was. I got to revisit it and talk about it in a contemporary context. But I think it's so interesting because um, he, much like weirdly like Holden and Mindhunter, you know, he, he thinks he's in control yeah. um, in the way that we're so used to having serial killers represent him, and he's completely out of control. And the women are so far ahead of him in the book. But I think that, that that's why she can't use their POV uh, mm-hmm. to do the deconstruction she wants to do. You know, she's she has to have the reader be with be, be with the killer. Uh, but I would, I mean, I'd love to imagine her, you know, writing. Uh, she didn't write that many books. She took a long break from motherhood, as women did then mm-hmm. and, and still do. Um, but when I, you know, she's, she's just, a fantastic writer. Her other book that I would recommend would be Expendable Man, um, which is also a male point of view, um, and is um, you know I, there would I would I would be a reveal a spoiler to reveal what it was about. But I think yeah I think she understood something um, that none of the male writers. Uh, at that time would have understood because they were actually embodying it. <laughs> yeah, it, it one of the best things about Queenpin to me is that um, the male characters in the book are actually, they are also tropes and they are operating very much in the fixed way that we would expect them to, from the, the narrator's father to Vic himself to Amos Mackey, the, sort of the big uh, 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 capo who, who appears in the second half of the book. They are all know their roles and they're fixed in their roles. And what's fascinating about your protagonist and Glory to some degree is that they have to be, I think, by the nature of society and gender, many things all at once all the time. And because of that, there's like a there's a range of it would be charitable to call them options, but there are a range of possibilities for them um, that they need to be aware of, which changes the tenor of the story and their role in it. That's right. I mean, they're all, they're sort of, you know, women have to be in masquerade. I guess it's a classic instruction. They're always right. putting on different performances. And that's something I, I, that's sort of a constant in all my books is the notion. Because I have a book, you know, kind of all about cheerleaders. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, just the, you know, they're all putting on this sort of persona, all American girl in those cases. And it's a way, it's a way of, uh, the way of, as Scorsese would say, it's smuggling in something more subversive. You know, if you wear the mask of the, you know, of the, you know, femme fatale or the the doll in the nightclub or the showgirl, you know, you can get away with anything if you mm-hmm. can wear that mask well enough. Um, uh, sorry, I, I lost my train of thought for a moment. Um, recently we had um, the writer Scott Frank on the podcast, and we were talking about Godless, the show on Netflix, and you know, it's a, it's 
both a Western and a deconstruction of Westerns, but really a love letter to Westerns. And as someone, I, I, I've appreciated many Westerns, but I sometimes find it hard to find my way into it. I, I wonder if you could help us, and I'm with you on this one for sure, make the case for noir as a genre, both in your, your explorations of it and the classics. Like what, what is it about this form that is so elastic and um, uh, adaptable and, and, and something that has, yeah. has thrived for so long um, for people who maybe, you know, haven't engaged with the books or maybe sort of can't see past the cliches of the, you know, of the, 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 the private, private eye behind the smoky glass. Right. Yeah, yeah, no, I think about that a lot. I mean, I, because uh, I've taught them a few times, and it's always the first day with the book, or if I show them a clip from Postman Always Rings Twice, or Double Indemnity or something, everyone laughs at first and rolls their eyes. And then, and then you usually have to push past that because they don't understand. Um, often that these aren't cliches. This is actually the first time anyone ever said this. <laughs> right. You know, and everything, they've only heard the bad versions or, or hopefully the good versions, like, you know, Cohen Brothers sort of iterations of this. But, um, but I think what that ultimately I've taught in a lonely place and, and that, that's always a big favorite. Or I've taught Hammett or Raymond Chandler or, um, James M. Kane. And the thing that I think works is that, um, these are really eternal things. They're all about desire, fear, greed, lust, um, revenge. These these are they they're in the Bible and before, right? They're 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 always there. They never date. And these are books that are that's what they're about. That you know, that's just stripped down, you know, right to where we all live. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think that I think there's this reputation I think they have because of certain limbs out of there's this that they're bleak books or or dark books, dark in a way, but um, most of them, you know, I think have a lot of humor. Certainly, you can't read, you know, Raymond Chandler or, or Dashiell Hammett without laughing. Um, but there's also a real glamour and romance to them, um, and they're a lot about um, gender, and they're a lot about power and stuff that is is very of the moment too. So, so I think that they kind of. They don't date other than the initial trappings. If you can push past two pages, you know, when, you know, people are sort of, you know, they, and then you see that playing is actually this great gift. Mm-hmm. Um, it starts to seem fun and, you know, um, and that that's sort of a way to sort of bring you in. I mean, is that, what was the first one you read, you guys read? Um, the first sort of classic I, I i think chandler i think chandler first and yeah, then um yeah. and then then i went into david goodis and then then hughes oh, and yeah. then and sort of fell down a well um but yeah. but but chandler you read it and you're like this is just great literature it's just so, it's such a blast and 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 i actually yeah. was curious about that if this was as much fun to write as it is to read yeah with, with, with the caveat yeah, that writing with the caveat I, that writing I, is never fun but I, you know, no, I mean, yeah, as much as writing can ever be fun, but to me it is because I, I watched these movies when I was a kid. I grew up with them. I, you know, I, you know, I write, you know, I, I really repeat some of the scenes and just tweak them, you know, like that I just are so burned in my brain from, you know, Sunset Boulevard or, you know, any of these. They're, they're so, um, 
they're so wired in. So it, it is like getting to, for my, in my case, sort of getting to walk into your dream, you know, in some way and play around there. Um, it feels like you're being, you're being given permission. You have the blue key, as you'd say in David Lynch land, you right. know. Uh, you know, if there's someone else, if there's someone, I mean, uh, you know, he's another one who really understands noir and, and repurposes it so beautifully. Well, I think you said it best. There's a, there is surprising amount of power in putting in playing roles and putting on the costume and yeah. putting on the makeup and what that gain what you what what the access that you can gain from that to levels of society yeah. or to parts of people's brains depending on your job. Um, well, it's really exciting, um, Megan. Thank you so much for talking to us about it. Um, I loved reading Queenpin. I think probably a lot of our listeners did as well. Um, you have a new book coming out in 2018, the first part of the year, correct? Yeah, July, I think. I, I always I always get filled with dread. So, <laughs> yeah, July. Not, July is correct. And, so. and, and, and what's it called, the new one? It's called um, Give Me Your Hand. Oh, that's, um, that's good yeah, and ominous. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's very noir, this one. Because it, it, it came out of last year, so it takes a dark turn. Uh, as, <laughs> as I think we're all ready for that now, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I very much hope that you will join us again to talk about the new book and then maybe oh, the second yeah. season of The Deuce. And also, whatever other random TV criticism that you would like to share, this is a safe space for it. Oh, that's great. No, I love listening to you guys. It's been such a pleasure, and you, you, you've turned me on to so many things, so I'm, I'm thrilled. Well, thank you so much, Megan. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Sonos. You know how much Andy and I love using Sonos around the house. You just changes the way you listen to music in your apartment or home. All we wanted was to be able to talk back to our Sonos, and now we have it. Sonos One blends great sound with Amazon Alexa, the easy-to-use voice service for hands-free control of your music and more. You use your voice to play songs while you cook, turn up the volume while you're in the shower, turn down the volume when you're about to go to bed. You can even manage smart devices all using a single Sonos speaker, and for a limited time, Sonos is offering the listeners of The Watch 10% off of one order of $2,500 or less for any product on Sonos.com. Just use the promo code WATCH10. That's W-A-T-C-H capital letters one zero at Sonos.com to receive this order.